You're listening to the podcast of Dr. Chip Bennett. Please consider following us and giving us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Hey, I'm Chip Bennett with uh, Dr. Warren Gage. We're continuing our study here on uh, Revelation. We've we've covered a lot of ground. If anybody's hung out at this point, then they've covered a lot of ground from uh, saints from, that are persevering. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, but but I think at the end of the day, what they've been able to see is that there's a lot of commonality. There's a lot of literary themes, a lot of vocabulary usage, and and possibly starting to see maybe a different way to read John and Revelation. Um, t- mm-hmm. together and that, that, that there is really something going on there. I, I think that, you know, as we come to, to, to sort of the, the ending of the railroading of, of, of the, the reading of how the railroad ties work and the chiastic reading, um, it, it's not, it, it, I guess it can't go without notice that in the same way Luke and Acts sort of bookend theirs, there is a bookending to John and Revelation, which is a citation from Zechariah. Which shows that they're woven together because it's the, the, it, it's appealed to at the end of John, at the beginning of Revelation, the idea of um, it's a, it's in the it's in the the story of the crucifixion, uh, where the quotation takes place and they will not see him until they mourn over the one they mm-hmm. pierced, and then the next time he's seen after the ascension, is in Revelation one when John mm-hmm. sees him on Patmos. And yeah. so I think there's a connection there, but that means that they're woven together. That, that's very subtle. I think, that, I think that what happens, what throws a lot of people, and the reason that the books are often read separately and people actually think that they can write a commentary mm-hmm. on John and ignore Revelation or a commentary on Revelation and ignore John is because they're divided so far in the canon. That's one thing. Yeah. And the same thing with Luke, because we've, you know, it's very clearly one enterprise, sure. but it's been separated by sure. John. Mm-hmm. And so that, that disturbs that immediate concept that, well, I need to read these together. Correct. It's like, and so uh, the, the reason for that, and I think the reason for that is what I call literary affinity. And that is, uh, obviously, the New Testament begins with the synoptics. We want to, we want to collect the Gospels. So the question is, John, it's very different. That's sure. why the whole synoptic issue is there. It's a gospel about Jesus, but it doesn't seem to fit the other pattern. Yeah. But because it is a gospel about the, the life and ministry of Jesus mm-hmm. on earth, uh, the affinity with the other gospels draws it together, which separates it from John, sure. from, from, from the revelation, sure. that is. So it is a gospel, but it's also a literary diptych. It's it's united. It's one book actually, and two treatises with with Revelation. Uh, the same thing happens. We've argued that that's, and I think that's accepted that Luke and Luke also is a gospel, and it's very much like the other th- uh, two synoptics. But then it has a companion piece. Yeah. But that's been divided because we want to put sure. the gospel in there right. with the other three. So we've got the four gospels. That has caused it to be separated. John then intervenes and separates it from its companion piece. And um, yet it is attracted to, it wants to be connected to sure. Luke. But, but, but it's only because um, with Luke, you have the introduction to Theophilus mm-hmm. and you have it at the beginning of Acts. If Theophilus would have somehow not have been put in those two books. Mm-hmm. Okay, it, it, somebody could have come along and said, "Whoa, look how well these books read together!" But they nobody would have gone, "Oh, well, how do, how are you making that correspondence?" Because the, you you can make it literarily. There's no question. But the reasoning I think that people have been open to Luke and Acts being read as a diptych no is because there is that internal moment. But the fact that John has left the resurrection with a quotation from Zechariah and starts off the next book with a quotation from Zechariah. Um, th- th- that's, that, that, that should at least prompt a reader to say, hold on, that's, that's interesting that that's together. And then when you do the consecutive stuff, you realize just like if you were to look at Luke and Acts, you realize these, these books are supposed to be read together, but because they're divided. But, it, but I will say with Luke and Acts, um, historically speaking, the, uh, the commentaries have been separate. But there are commentaries that are now starting to appear 
that Luke and Acts are being read together. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think there's this, the, the more, and, and I think it's the blessing, honestly, of computers, um, mm-hmm. the, the more we can highlight a word in our software and then it can populate where all those other words happen, it, it, it starts to, you start to start catching up on things like, oh my goodness, exactly. this, this good. Cause it used to be, you know, an old lamp and a, a Greek text or a Hebrew text. And that's the, you just had to work through it. Not just know? that in the nineties, when I um, made this discovery about John and revelation, I had to do everything by hand. Yeah. And when I, when a friend of mine, Randy Beck discovered the Delta form and that basically is that um, I, I've explored it thoroughly in Mark because it's the shortest mm-hmm. gospel. But every, virtually every other verse is the pinnacle of a delta form, of a, of a chiastic structure that goes to the end of the verse. If it's in chapter 9, it's going to go virtually to both ends. But if it's in chapter 3, it will go to the end or the beginning of the gospel and then to chapter 6. So, I mean, virtually every other verse, there is some tracing of a chiastic format that goes you literally have to count the verses back and forward in order to make those connections. Mm-hmm. Like I was talking about, oh, I've already mentioned in Mark, that the three statements about who is Jesus, you know, the, the one in chapter one, where, where, the, where God says, this is my beloved son. And then in, at, the, at the transfiguration in the middle, mm-hmm. where he says, this is my beloved son, hear him. And then the confession of the centurion that drove in the nails at the end, truly this was the son of God. Those are mathematically, you can, I mean, they're right, they're bisected yeah. off of the transfiguration. But you, if you figure it, if you check all the verses in between those, you find there are lots of correspondences that trace this chiastic pattern. Yeah. It took me forever to do, to do those 16 chapters, you know, taking each verse, basically. It turned out it was about every other verse, but you see these patterns all the time. If you've got a grid that fine, yeah then you can determine what's extraneous. Certainly that's where you see that the ending of Mark is authentic. It's not like, you know, they chop it off at verse eight, but no, it goes all the way to 20. And uh, uh, I got that all written up too, but but anyway, it's, it's, it's all, you know, I think it makes, here's the thing. Uh, I remember hearing people who believe in inspiration that God, um, well, we, we say we believe in verbal plenary inspiration and all of that. And then we turn around and say, but it only obtained in the original autographs. That never made sense to me. I'm thinking, well, how do we know that then? If, uh, if, if we believe that God would providentially protect his word, how does that happen? And it, it doesn't seem sufficient to me if even, in, you know, if you compile the majority of the text and you come up with a, like von Soden's K, you come up with a majority version um, that's one way of doing it, but they say, no, we need to weigh them. And you know how all that goes. Oh, yeah. You gotta have different, sure. you know, more ancient and yep. all that. And then mm-hmm. you have, you come up with these canons of Lectio Difficilior and Lectio uh, Brevior. The, the shorter and the more difficult are to be preferred. All of that's arbitrary, it seems to me. And it comes to all kinds of different conclusions. And we basically have 10% of the, the literary text that's, that we debate about. And so, and I, that, that just doesn't square to me with God and his providence. It seems to me if he's going to give a word, he's going to give a mechanism for preserving that word. It's not as arbitrary as whatever documents we have happen to be preserved and that we happen to find. And so what I think has happened is I think God did give us a word, but woven into it is the key to re- reconstructing it and seeing what is really uh, extraneous and what isn't. It's so that it's no longer, textual criticism is no longer dependent on the manuscripts. It's it, the, 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 the netting within the, the, the works themselves is such and of such fine mm-hmm. finitude that you can determine down to the very word once it's done. Now in the 90s, I had to do all of that by hand and it, it's laborious and it takes a long time. And you work at it and you think, There's, am I fanciful? Uh, is this fantasy or is this real? But then you find something that's absolutely stunning and you think, wow, no, this is right. And so I think with uh, the application of computers now, you're exactly right. I think that will completely change that. I think to, that will obviate the dependency on the camera. Yeah, I think that I think when you think about, you know, reading a Bible chiastically, which would have a, a work chiastically or 
starting something and ending something, which would have been just the way they were writing in a Hellenistic society. I mean, there's the, I don't I don't think that that is um, super debatable. Um, I think that when it comes to it's taking over classical yeah, studies, yeah, I mean, what I'm and saying it's is, not yeah. just Mediterranean. I mean, you find it in yeah. Mesopotamia and Egypt, even. But knowing that, like knowing that that is the way that they um, would write, mm-hmm. when we come to the the scripture, it's interesting because in the last ten years, and uh, um, maybe the last twenty, but somewhere in, in the ten to twenty years, um, what has happened in many of the newer commentaries is that they're starting to look at various pericopes and they're starting to draw these chiasms mm-hmm. in the new commentaries. So so if, if you went back 10 or 15 years and you talked about this, it would have been like, hold on, we've never heard anything like this. This is crazy. Anybody who studied literature would have known something about it. But biblical commentators and stuff, it wasn't as prevalent, although they did know that there was Hebrew parallelism there was a, there was some form of that writing that they were aware of. But what you're seeing is you're seeing with the advent of things like Logos Bible software and stuff like that, where you can pull all kinds of stuff, people are starting to realize, hey, you know what? There's words here that are here, and there's words here that are here, and, the, and they go together. And all we're saying is that all these commentators that are now starting to see it in the pericopes, we're saying, oh, no, no, it's much larger than the pericopes. It's the actual entire enterprise of a book is that there's this stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And, and some of this is 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 land that's never been plowed. There's I mean, there's stuff that, no. that nobody's even Absolutely. looked at, um, you know, up at this point. But but it, it it's not fanciful. It's not it's not something that, you know, we just, oh, well, here's a new novel way to, to read or to understand. We're just saying, hey, in the first century, this was common stuff. But when you actually apply that common stuff to the New Testament books, um, even in the Old Testament books, um, uh, but especially the New Testament books, you, you start to go, hold on, the correspondence of what's going on here is, it, it's, it's more than just we're trying to shoehorn something in. You know, uh, um, I remember when I was talking with you one time, and I think we were in Olive Garden, and you, you mentioned about the... Uh, the, the head of Caesar on the coin um, when Jesus is uh, um, you know asked about the coin in the in the Gospel of Mark um, that when you bring it down the, the the head of John the Baptist on the platter is 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 chiastically referenced to the head of Caesar on the coin you know and, and when you start seeing these things and then then there's the other one where the the, 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 the rock rolls away uh, on the tomb there, there's 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 stuff here that it is there, but it takes some time. And people, the natural, I think, natural person, because they've never heard anything like this, is going to say it's fanciful. You're, you're just you're making this stuff up. You're whatever. I, I just would I just would kindly suggest that a lot of the new commentaries are, are starting to move into chiastic structures. And that's not something you can go back and find plenty of books on chiastic stuff throughout the history of the church. It's not like it's there's nothing there. There are books on chiastic stuff. Yeah, you know? but I mean, I've seen a lot of that in my lifetime because I was in yeah. seminary in the 70s. Yeah. And when I was in seminary, they talked about chiasm, but it was usually a couplet. Correct. It's, yeah. You know, like man was not made, uh, the Sabbath was not made for man, but man. Yes. No, I got it backwards. Man was... Uh, the Sabbath was made, made for, man, for man, not, not man, man for the Sabbath. Sabbath. Yeah. And Jesus uses the chiastic structure because sure. he wants to invert the that's way right. that you think about it. So right. that's the evidence of it. But it was seen in couplets only, Correct. things like that. Correct. Then, um, then, but now that's not the way it was completely. You know, that goes back to Joachim Albert Bengel, who's the first one who defined it along that and called it chiasm, yep. as, as 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 I understand mm-hmm. it. It was seen in short little correct, yeah, things. Then, then when um, and I didn't know till much later, Niels Lund in the forties had written. Uh, books finding chiasms mm-hmm. everywhere, but if something didn't fit, he would shift it and make it fit. Yeah, I'd, and that's and that, where he that's lost where it his got credibility. It. Absolutely, you know, yeah. So it was neglected for a long time. Well, it wasn't until I was in graduate school and I had a real affinity for Plutarch and uh, what is an amazing program and it, of reading classics, particularly Hellenistic classics. I was reading his life of Lycurgus, the founder of Sparta. And it was just, I mean, it just jumped out at me. This is very clearly a chiasm. So I wrote my master's, you know, thesis on that. 
and uh, fell in love with uh, with that and thought this is really helpful. But that was the first time I, I ever recognized mm -hmm. that Kaizen is not just a, a sentence or two or a paragraph, sure. but it's actually an entire life, which is a you know 30, 40 pages worth of uh, material. And then the other life that was balancing it, so that that all that was instructive. And that was in I wrote that just that thesis in 1995, and it was in 1996 that I had this theory that maybe John and Revelation, we can talk about that sometime, but anyway, maybe they were connected chiastically mm -hmm. too. So God was providentially uh, educating me to get me to a place to, to begin to make that job. But I think that, I think there's some things that we can, we can talk about here. There are all kinds of, when I was doing the dissertation, I found all kinds of uh, structures. Randy is this friend of mine who I met at law school. He had uh, already, um, he, he discovered this delta form that I talked about, the, this chiastic pattern that occurs virtually at every other verse. I think it's every other verse because the corresponding, if there is a corresponding, you know, would probably fill in the between. But anyway, it was an amazingly fine grid by which to ju judge these things. That was, the, that was where in doing Mark, that's where I found the correspondence between Mark 6 and Mark 12. Mark 6 is the elaborate description of the murder of John the Baptist where, you know, um, he comes, you know, the, the daughter of Herodias Salome, actually is the one who, who demands the, uh, you know, the, the uh, head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. And then it's in chapter 12 where Jesus is being confronted by the Herodians, you know, about uh, is it lawful to pay taxes sure. to Caesar? So they'll tolerate this murderous, incestuous king but uh, who murders God's prophet, sure. but, you know, do we pay taxes just this way? And Jesus then uh, says, bring me a denarius. And he, d he could have said whose head is on the denarius, but he says, bring me a denarius. So he has the Herodians without thinking it. Someone pulls out a denarius with Tiberius's head on it and they bring it to Jesus. He's made them reenact their crime in front of the people. The people would have gotten that too. They've actually brought him the head of, and of course the Herodians were in league with the Caesar. So sure. he's basically saying, you know, he's going to visit judgment on them. And when I realized, I, I did that in doing chiastic work between, you know, within Mark itself, and that, and I realized, man, that's that opens up the passage in an incredible way. So, um, so anyway, you have that fine, and then the other thing was when I found out, like at the end of. Um, John, you've got the quotation from Zechariah about, you know, they will look at me and whom they've pierced. Mm -hmm. You pick that up in John, and that meant that the delta form that I thought was ending there actually went into the companion book, and I traced it the other way, and it goes all the way down. So it comes this way. If there's a companion volume, it goes this way. I took nine months out to apply the same technique mm -hmm. to Luke and Acts just to validate it. My, Am I imagining all of this or something? But there it is. I've got it all worked out. So my dissertation, the, the chiastic modeling in, in Luke and Acts. But then I discovered that they go all the way through both volumes. So uh, I call that then the omega form. I'm getting these names. Um, but there are other patterns of connecting them. I mentioned typology. I found fragments of other patterns. How, how is it that it's like a rubric's cube, every which way you turn it, it keeps the same outward structure, but internally it's it's viable. And so I put all of that in the appendices to my dissertation as a to point to people yep. in the future that might want to explore that. I felt like borrowing an image from Machiavelli. He describes Columbus. Uh, and of course, he's, he's writing in the early 1500s and Columbus is 1492, but he, he describes Columbus sailing up and down the new continent. And he has no idea how that's even a continent. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it's islands. So you have no idea how deep it goes. And he just, you discovered a new world. And I realized, man, this can be explored, these literary patterns. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just seeing the edges of this new world, yeah. but it's all there to be seen. And all of that implies that this is really a divine book. Because once you put all of these patterns together, you think there is no way that any human author. I mean, I know I know Plato very well. He writes the Republic yep. is a, is is chiastic. He goes all the way into the cave and then he comes back out of the cave in, in one level. And so, you know, the whole thing is a, is an icon of 
his argument in mm-hmm. terms of what he's doing. And there, you know, I did I did a chiastic analysis of um, Aeneid mm-hmm. at one point, and I, I worked that out, and it's there. But it's very superficial when you talk about the kind of patterning you find in Scripture. They don't have it that elaborate. Mm-hmm. So the mind of man is imagined. You know, Longinus said said that uh, Plato worked on his uh, Republic. He was like he was with a comb. He was leaving curls and you know making making sure. it. It's very beautiful imagery there, but not anything like what we're talking about with scripture. It's it's really phenomenal what we have going on here. So um, there's another thing too that uh, is fascinating, and that is chiasm. Uh, we have the chiasm between John and Revelation. We can we can we mm-hmm. can talk about that too, uh, and we can show how that works. Chiasms are usually visualized in kind of a inverted V one way or the other, Mm -hmm. you know, you turn it this way or that way. Um, The chiasm of uh, uh, Gordon Wenham, which I did see before uh, I was doing my work with Plutarch, he takes the the narrative of the flood and he puts the flood narrative, the three chapters in Genesis, he puts them in the form of a chiasm, the turning point, the pivot point, is God remembered Noah and those who are with him in the ark. The God's remembrance is a word of covenant and so, you know, this describes the, the down thing describes the, the, the world, you know, the flood, and then yep. the waters begin to assuage and we are mm-hmm. in a new world. And it occurred to me, if you turn that upside down to where you have it a peak instead of like an inverted V, but you have it like this, you see the waters rising up to the point of God's remembrance in 8.1, I think it is. Okay. And, then- and then the waters are assuaging, you see. And so emblematically, he's got a wave that goes over that old world and, and the world that was parishes. Uh, so it's, it, you, you know, these things become iconic and they're very deliberate, it seems to me. So what I found is that you can model the chiasm. The chiasm is supposed to be an X and we've mm-hmm. talked about certain, you know, A, B, um, A prime, B prime kinds yep. of formats that you can do it that way. But there are different models. Uh, Charles Lamb says that the chiasm can be modeled mathematically in the form of uh, a helix okay. like this you, you know you know you know the it, mathematically that makes because it's inverting on itself and yet it's being elaborated see how that works yeah. well i mean this blows your mind but if john is helical because it is chiastic within the four corners mm-hmm. of john and revelation um is Chiastic mm-hmm. within the four corners of Revelation. But if the two books are woven together, mathematically, you can model them as a double helix. Well, the double helix is the emblem, it's the structure of life. And these books, I mean, certainly John, the son of Zebedee, had no understanding of yeah. DNA. But if that kind of tracing is tying these books together, where did that come from? Yeah. I mean, what, I mean what, what in the world can you do with that? And I think another illustration of this is the fact of time. If we think about time in the scripture, time, time, well, as John is dealing with time, sure. if we think about time in the Bible, God creates the, uh, the sun and the moon, stars, all that, it says, for signs and seasons in Genesis 1, right? Mm -hmm. And time is measured by movement. Aristotle says that. We measure the the stars. Mm -hmm. If there is no movement, we're in the steady state, you know, that's, there is no movement, there is no time. Sure. So, but anyway, he he gives us these orbits that, by which we measure in in the moon cycles and the sun, the solar year and all this, by which we measure the progress of time. But in the Bible, uh, we come to Joshua uh, in the Battle of Beth Horon in the Igelin Valley. Um, he makes the sun to stand still mm-hmm. and the moon to stand still. Um, and so what do we do with that? I mean, if God created time, he can, he can extend it too, right? There's a, a pause in that cycle. And there's a purpose given for that pause. But then you come to Hezekiah and he promises to lengthen Hezekiah's day. And right. to demonstrate that, what does he do? 
he puts the sundial backwards. Mm -hmm. Time goes backwards 15 degrees. Mm -hmm. So it seems like in all of that, what we're being told in the scripture is that God determines time. He plays with it. It's not fixed. He can, he can, he can set it forward, which is typical, but he is also able to make it stand still. He's also able to make it go backwards. And that is really remarkable when you think about it. I, I remember um, um, Einstein, the whole theory of relativity is that time and space vary. The faster you go, as you approach the speed of light, time slows down. Remember that? Yeah. So he's coming up with the same kind of modeling mm -hmm. that I'm seeing in scripture that, and you, you've got then quantum math, which is, um, you know, obliterating the idea of the possibility of random randomness. And, and all of the mathematical modeling there comes together, which validates the law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. All that's coming together. So it's, it seems like there's something something going on here. In Revelation, John has a vision of time too. He talks about the things that were, the things that are, the things that are to come, which you know is linear time. We understand that. And when you're reading Revelation, you think, I'm reading forward. I'm going forward in time. Some people put it at the very end of the age, but I think you're you're you know, he's he's certainly got an idea of the progress of time. So everybody assumes that, well. I'm reading about things that are going to follow in sequence. But there's another way of reading uh, Revelation, and it's a fascinating way of reading Revelation, actually, because it, it begins, Jesus begins by um, the seven letters to the churches. And what he's doing there, he's the high priest who is trimming the wicks of his um, seven churches. Like, you know, that becomes the new menorah. Well, the menorah is only found in the Old Covenant and in Jerusalem, but here is the menorah of the temple in Roman Asia, which is eastern Turkey. And so something has happened. You know, the church is, the, the temple is being universalized so that when you come to the end of Revelation, the temp, there is no temple there. Everything is holy. Everything is temple, right? Yeah. So Jesus begins by rebuilding the Temple of Solomon and reestablishing the kingdom of David. In the very place in the Old Testament where David sins and Solomon sins, and then the kingdom goes into decline hmm. till we go to the exile. It's chiastic, by the way, in 2 Samuel, because the middle of 2 Samuel is chapters 11 and 12. It's the first part is David establishes his kingdom, then he sins, and then the kingdom goes into decline. So, so if, if you think about it that way, if Jesus is rebuilding the authentic temple, the universal temple, and reestablishing the kingdom, you move further into Revelation, you are going back to the beginning. At the end of Revelation, you're at the creation. You're back in Eden with the garden of the tree of life and talking about a new heavens and a new earth. But in, the, in between, time goes in reverse. It's kind of like, uh, from that perspective, redemption often uh, is formulated that way. You know, when you've done something you shouldn't have done, you know, right. you think, oh, I wish I could roll the tape back. Right. Just go back if I could do that. You think, you know, I remember in one of the Superman movies, you know, he, he, he did, goes yeah. around. Lois Lane died or something. Yeah, it? and he goes back to resurrect her by reversing time. And I think that's kind of an interesting vision. But anyway, what happens in Revelation is you're at the, at the peak of the Davidic and Solomonic kingdom at the beginning of Revelation, then you move further into it and you, you find yourself, you know, you've got the seven trumpets are sounding and the great city that's falling sure. and all of that. So you're at the time of yeah. Joshua and Jericho, mm -hmm. who, who is taking the land uh, and, and, and then you move further into it and um, you're at uh, the place where the people uh, are delivered from the beast from the sea and they're standing on the, the crystal waters and singing the song of Moses. So you go back to Exodus 15. You go further, he's pouring out judgment over all the earth of fire. So you're almost like Noah. And then you come at the end of the book, you're back in the garden. And we were forbidden from the tree of life uh, in Genesis. But now he says to him who overcomes, I'll give to eat of the tree of life. And then you're in a garden. There's no curse. And the curse and there's sure. no death. All of that was entered, introduced in the beginning That's of the right. Bible. So you're at the conclusion 
So time, and you're moving on, then you're looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. So time goes backwards as well as forwards in Revelation. This, this is a this is a crazy, crazy book. And I don't see how in the world, how could all of these thoughts have been anticipated? Yeah. Um, they, they clearly weren't. They weren't. This, it, it, the only way you, I think the only thing, a conclusion you can draw is that this is a divinely inspired uh, book. If we think about Revelation as the upper story mm-hmm. and John as the lower story on sure. earth, and this is in heaven, mm-hmm. largely for perspective, the gospel begins looking back to the first creation. In the beginning was the Word, mm-hmm. and the Word makes all things, all things mm-hmm. are made by Him. So that it looks back to the beginning of Moses and the first creation. At the end of Revelation, we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. So John in Revelation is a canvas that comprehends all of time. Mm-hmm. It's how his typology, he's got all of the typological features here, showing how Jesus is yep. greater. Yep. All of them are imposed, it's like a montage. Sure. Then you've got all of space because you've got heaven mm-hmm. and you've got earth here. You even have allusions to the underworld. But you've got it's a canvas, John and Revelation are a canvas that show all of time and all of space. And John in that is drawing all of these things and showing you how Jesus is greater. Mm-hmm. It's I mean it's it's a vision of this book that is just it 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 you know it completely causes you to have to reimagine everything here. You have whole new dimensions. The boundary of death is broken mm. because of resurrection. So he teaches us new ways to dream. Correct. And we haven't really applied this, I don't think. We, you know, we're so locked into this verse by verse and all of that. That's a right way of reading. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, it's a wonderful way of reading, but we're not reading these things organically, which we really need to do. Um, one of his great visions is Mary Magdalene and her when she comes to the the tomb on the morning of the resurrection. And what she sees when he, she looks into the tomb, she sees this uh, uh, stone slab where the grave clothes of Jesus were and an angel sitting at the head and the foot. And they're saying, behold, where he lay. Imagine saying as they're, they're marveling at those grave clothes sprinkled in blood because this is the... She's given a vision of the living Ark of the Covenant. And the way John works out that all that through his whole gospel, showing all the pieces of furniture in their order as you go through them. But anyway, so what happens with that is she's she's given the vision, not Peter and John, by mm-hmm. the way. So here is a woman who had been deranged, clearly demonically possessed, and she sees the reality of what all of the sons of Aaron for 1,400 years had only been able to see once a year in type, she sees the reality. So what has he done? I mean, look at what John is, his imagination. He has taken the holy, the Ark of the Covenant in the most sacred part That's of right. Israel in the Holy of Holies and placed it in the tomb of Jesus, which is a tomb is the most defiled place. So he's made all places clean. He's, he's completely turned, he's taken a woman who had been deranged and made her the culmination of all of the Aaronic priests. So a woman is a priest now. What does that imply? I mean, he, these are new ways of imagining things that break, sure. totally break the continuity with, with, uh, with the old place. It's a world where whores become virgins, um, publicans become apostles, Matthew. Mm-hmm. The chief of sinners becomes the chief apostle. It's unbelievable, all space is holy. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. There's none need to spare of the love of God. It's yet, it's not a universalist vision either because the whore of Babylon, like Rahab, is rescued, but the whorish city is judged with fire. So so all of that is something of this vision of, of John that we need to, John, and this composite work, this fabulous enterprise that he's sure. given us. So there's two still looming questions before we get into um, just going through the book mm-hmm. expositionally you know, or thematically or however we're, you know, it, it'll, it'll be a, it'll be an introductory run through. We'll be line by line, every word, but there's, I think there's two remaining integral crest questions. And of course we could address them when we got there, but I think they're important to address. The first one is who's the whore of Babylon. And we have alluded to that in this, 
Um, and the second question would be, what is the great city that's being dealt with? Okay. Um, well, let me talk about it literarily first. Okay, sure. Because I think that yeah, it's fine. that's the uniqueness that we're trying to bring. Absolutely. To uh, and we'll actually, we can talk about this when we get to that chapter. We can see it a little bit more specifically. But, but let's think about it this way. John ends his book with two women, the portraits of two women, or Lady Babylon and Lady New Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Both are cities, too, but he ends it with two figures. He elaborately describes both of them. Uh, one point of commonality is they both wear pearls, which is interesting because that's the mark of a bride. She's mm -hmm. clearly wanting to be a bride, but you know mm -hmm. there is the, the one is venal and completely wicked, and the other one is as virtuous and you know and perfect and holy. Yeah. So there's two visions here, and we know that we know the identity of the second woman because it's called the New Jerusalem. But new is important because new. New in the Bible, the first nuance of new is not new in time; it's redemptive. Mm -hmm. You know, he put he, yeah. he saved me from the miry pit, and he put a new song on my lips. It's a, re, a song of sure. redemption. Mm -hmm. So anyway, new is a word of redemption. But if this is New Jerusalem, the first implication is that this woman is old Jerusalem. That's the the contrast of new and old. Mm -hmm. That's the first nuance that you would make with respect to. Jerusalem, that it's the old Jerusalem. And the literary figure is called St. Chrysus. There are two visions that you're putting together. Mm -hmm. Now, the two women are two cities. We know that. In Galatians 4, Paul gives us two visions. There are two women. One is Hagar and one is Sarah. That's right. You see? And um, uh, those are two women, but they become two cities because the Sarah is the mother of the covenant child Correct. and Hagar is the the non-covenant the mother of the non-covenant child and so what 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 Paul does is he reverses the hands of grace mm -hmm. and what he says is that Jerusalem which is above is our mother writing to you know Galatians sure. and Gentiles and Jews the Jerusalem which is above which is new Jerusalem mm -hmm. is our mother the Jerusalem which is below those are the sons of Ishmael, even though they're the sons of, of uh, Isaac. Sure. But he says they've become spiritually the sons of That's Ishmael. Right. And so, so it, you know, whether you're Jew or Gentile depends upon whether you have faith. That's what he's sure. saying, the continuity. Are you connected to Christ? That's right. Because that's why there's no replacement going on here. The promises were only made to the seed. So if you're in the seed, you've got the promises. If you're outside of the seed, if yeah. you are outside of the seed, you don't have the promises. So there's no replacement because the promises were not made to the ethnoite, the ethnos. They were made to the Christ, to the That's one right. who is the legitimate yeah. seed. So, but we've we've got this same figure that the apostles are using of mm -hmm. the heavenly Jerusalem and the earthly Jerusalem, and the earthly Jerusalem is persecuting the uh, the sons of promise. That's, That's right. the, so. So in that context, we're talking about earthly Jerusalem and heavenly Jerusalem. Then in Hebrews, if you read 11 and 12, in 11, all these people have manifested their faith, mm -hmm. the heroes of faith, by their vision of the heavenly city. There are all these died in faith, not having received the promises. What are the promises? They're the heavenly city, the city that is builder and maker is God. He's the architect and the, and the one who builds the whole thing. They're, they're on the earth, they have earthly lands and sure. promises, but the real reality is the heavenly city. You can think of the Zion hymns, Psalm 46, 46 48, 48, and 76. Mm -hmm. that, those, those are, they're looking at, there is, a, there is a Jerusalem that's peaceful, that's not subject to all the chaotic waters, that sort of thing. So, so that's consistent in the, in the imagery there, but you've got, um, in Hebrews 11, they're looking for the heavenly city. In chapter 12, he contrasts the earthly city with Sinai. Remember? That's right. That's right. He says the earthly Jerusalem is Sinai. You know, it's thunder and fear and <laughs> and command that condemns and all of that kind of stuff. And he says, but we have not come to that kind of a city. We've come to a heavenly city with a heavenly community mm -hmm. and better promises. So it seems to me that if you read the New Testament consistently, they're using this figure of synchrosis. They're comparing two women 
that are cities and mountains and all of that. They're comparing that all the way through. And if on that reading, it seems if the figures are consistent throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, by the way, because Ezekiel calls Jerusalem a harlot in, mm -hmm. in her apostasy. So that makes sense. And, and she's like Sodom. And Jesus compares Jerusalem to Sodom when he says, when you flee from her, don't, you know, don't, don't look back. back. So you're fleeing Sodom. So mm -hmm. Jerusalem is going to receive the judgment of Egypt and Sodom. If that's the case, then, then Jesus is called, then the, the two cities in Revelation are very clear if the, if the apostolic teaching is consistent. Gotcha. The contrast between the heavenly Jerusalem and the earthly Jerusalem. So that implies then that the whorish city of Babylon is Jerusalem, that crucified right. Christ. Right. The text says that, though. Yeah, I, I, well, yeah, it does. Uh, I think that the significance then is why, why is the target city called Babylon? Why doesn't he just call it the old Jerusalem? Why does he call it Babylon? And Babylon is unique because Babylon destroyed the Temple of Solomon. Babylon is the temple-destroying mm -hmm. city, right? Mm -hmm. That's why the, a lot of the commentary will say, well, Rome is obviously the target city because Rome does what? Destroys the temple of Herod. Mm -hmm. So Rome is following that model of Babylon in being a temple-destroying city. But both temples were under judgment. Mm -hmm. You know, the Temple of Solomon was going to be destroyed. And Jesus said the temple sure. in all of the discourse, the temple in Jerusalem was to be sure. destroyed. But there's another temple-destroying city, and what is that? It's Jerusalem, mm -hmm. because the, they, they destroyed, destroyed Jesus, Jesus commanded them, destroy yeah. this temple. Yes. And he was speaking of the temple of his body. Yeah. That temple was not under condemnation. So Jerusalem's sin was greater than that of Babylon or Rome. Sure. They destroyed the holy sure. temple of God. So but it's still that's though, the target city. But still, though, in, in that passage, um, Revelation eleven eight, I mean, it says the, it's the city where the Lord was crucified, and He wasn't crucified in Rome. No, absolutely. You know, and so, so I mean, you I, can't I, get I, under, that I understand. First. I understand how how the reading because you know th they want to read seven mountains and they want to read different things and, and, and project it to Rome. But the the verse it, to me just cannot be gotten around because it, it specifically says the city is where the, the Lord was crucified, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's in its become... spiritually Egypt and Sodom. That's right. But locally it is where That's the exactly Lord was right. crucified. But it's, it's, it's Sodom and Egypt because it's, it's reversed the original, you know, command to, to humanity, which is to reproduce itself and to have um, dominion over the animals. And, and, and Sodom and Egypt have represents the op opposite of Absol those commissions. Absolutely. And, and, and there's consistently, literarily, through the New Testament, it, it, the, 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 the scene of Jesus in Matthew 2, um, you know, you, you, you read Herod, you, you read the, this, the introduction of Matthew, Jesus is, you know, in Egypt, he's out of Egypt, he goes through the waters, he goes to the wilderness, he goes up on the mountain. Almost everybody sees that as some sort of mosaic literary d device. Okay, but what's interesting is, is when the Magi come, um, th th we're told specifically that th they're given this star. And of course, th from a distance, th they're going to think a king's going to be born in Jerusalem. So th th they're not at fault to go to Jerusalem. Um, and they meet Herod, and they have all that stuff, and then they get sent on their way because the, the mm -hmm. Herod has no idea where the Christ is going to be born. But the, but the scribes do. They say it's going to be you know here in uh, um, you know Bethlehem. And uh, um, what, what's interesting though, if you read Matthew, it's very clear the star got them to Jerusalem. But it says when they went on their way, they saw the star again. It, M Matthew has made it to where that star is extinguished when they come to Jerusalem. It, it mm -hmm. leads them there, and it picks it back up when they. But it's not there for them to it's see when they're in Jerusalem. It's mm -hmm. it's a city of darkness. It's got a new Pharaoh. I mean, in Matthew eleven, we always read it. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Nobody doesn't read that as Pharaonic language. They they understand what that means. And so this this whole idea, and you start going. Yeah, Herod through, is the new Pharaoh because absolutely the male. And, and so you know, and, and this Israel. isn't this isn't like being this isn't denigrating 
Jerusalem or denigrating Jewish people or anything like that. It's just that this is what the scripture is saying concerning the, the target city. And it's not just in Revelation where it's, it's, it's brought out. You can see it throughout the New Testament. There, there's this idea that, hey, you know what I mean? And you read Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. I mean, Jesus says, and it's probably the most clearly articulated um, for hermeneutical reasons in Luke 21, because he says, when you see its desolation, you know its desolation has come near when you see the armies gathered around mm-hmm. it. Okay, what is its desolation? Well, it's the temple because they, they're walking around going, look at everything that's here. And Jesus says, well, not one of these stones are not going to be thrown down. And they say, tell us when this will happen and what will those signs be? So, so they're, not, they're not asking about the end of the world there. They're saying, tell us when this is going to happen. The stones are going to come down. Tell us what the signs will be before this happens. And he does. He says, you know when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies that its desolation has come near. We're, we're talking about the destruction. It's of surrounded the by eagles. Absolutely. And those are the emblems of the Roman legions Correct. that were in you know, so, so I, 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 I don't, like I said, this is just, this is not being. And the in, church read it that way because we know what happened historically. They left Jerusalem. They left. I mean, we, we, we know from just the historical writings that we have that the Christians fled. You know, and, mm-hmm. and which is interesting because I've always I always ask people when they read those passages like Matthew twenty four, Luke twenty one, Mark thirteen, where Jesus says, "Well, if you're in the city, and you see these things, you need to flee." Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if that is the second coming of the Lord, you don't need to be running. So, so we're, 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 you know, you, you don't He's need coming to be, for you. Yes, you don't need to be praying that you would not be with child in those days. Mm-hmm. You don't pray that your flight That's not be in the sad. winter. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and so I, I think that you know, it, it, it's shocking. To people when they realize that, oh my gosh, the city of Revelation is actually Jerusalem. But that opens up a reading, especially now that we've gone through the center of the book, we've gone through chiastic stuff, we've gone through the railroad ties, we've gone through um, the the, the chiastic stuff, we've we've looked at all the stuff, we've seen all the stuff. When you realize, okay, this target book is about a city that's going to fall, and that when that city falls, that there will be this understanding that that redemption has absolutely been procured, and and I think that's that's so key because once the temple fell, there was no way at all for any Jewish person to have any atonement for their sins according to the law. Yes, without the shedding of blood. That's exactly right, and so it leaves you. It shuts you up. Okay. Well, how else how? can you get forgiven? How else can your sins be atoned for? And, and, I, and I think that that's, that is the message of the New Testament. And that was the quarrel that broke news? out in, in Judaism. Yeah. And some of the Jews believed, well, Christ is the lamb, and he was slain. And once for all, that sacrifice, and sure. all of sacrifices, because it was the perfect son of God. Sure. And so they believe that Christian message, and the earliest Christians, of course, were Jews. Yeah. But then they quarreled with the rest, and well, here we are, so... So anyway, I think that that's, I think uh, just some cleanup thoughts on, on uh, Revelation 11.8, which is key here mm-hmm. in terms of we're told explicitly the city of Jerusalem. I don't think there's any way yeah. around that. Well, it, it's, but it's it, the figure through Revelation is Babylon. What is the target city? Peter writes from Babylon, remember, in mm-hmm. 1 Peter 5.13. And nobody connects that. He's never connected with Mesopotamia, but he's writing, I think, from Jerusalem. And they, the, it's evidence that they were, they understood that they were in an earthly Babylon that was uh, a city of confusion. I think the reason, you know, Peter is connected with Pentecost. Mm-hmm. And Pentecost uniquely is the place where when God comes down and reverses the judgment of Babel, mm-hmm. you see. Yeah. Whether temporary or however that happened, but it's clearly a reversal of intended of, of Genesis 11 of Babel. When that comes down, they hear the gospel in their own language in which they were mm-hmm. born. Um, that implies that Jerusalem somehow is like Babel, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. You see, if the healing takes place there, Absolutely. then Jerusalem somehow has become like Babel. And so I think Peter would say, yeah, of course, uh, you know, he's writing from, <laughs> from Babylon, sure. and the city that crucified Christ. John says Babylon, he, he says in Revelation, Babylon is divided into three parts. Well, what's the, re- the meaning of that? I think that's a reference to the titulus on the cross. The title that was written by Pilate, remember, he wrote in um, he wrote the title in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Mm-hmm. 
Mac, Mac whatever it was. Yeah. But anyway, what that means is the Jerusalem that crucified Christ is this confusion of three languages. It's like Babel. And that's what it takes to crucify Christ. So if that's the case, it explains why Babylon is divided into three parts. Um, Pentecost reverses that judgment for a while. And so why Babylon? Babylon destroyed the Temple of Solomon. Rome destroyed the Temple of Herod. But Jerusalem, again, we come back to that idea destroyed. that destroyed the true temple of Jesus' body. So there's no longer a temple. That's done. The third temple is the quarrel today. You know, yes. is there going to be a third temple? Correct. What that overlooks is what John said very clearly in chapter 2 of the gospel. Jesus said, destroy this temple. He commands them, the religious mm -hmm. leaders, to destroy his temple. And then he says, in three days, I will raise it up. What is the it? The temple. He is the temple. He becomes this, the temple. Sure. And he's, he's elevated into heaven, but he's still the temple. He fulfills every part of it. Sure. He's, he is the, the eternal temple. But he fulfills And we are them. then joined to him. Sure. But, he's, but he also, he is the fulfillment of Israel. You know, and people say, oh, that's replacement. No, it's not, because the promise was made to the seed, not plural, singular, which is Christ. Mm -hmm. So when, you get, when they go back to Genesis 12, 3 and say, oh, no, the, pro no, the seed that was promised to Abraham Paul tells was, us in his inspired scripture yes. that it's a plural, not a collective noun. It's a, it's it's a, a singular, it's not exactly. a collective noun. Yes, and so the, 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 this, this idea, you know, Jesus... I mean, we were even told in Matthew, out of, is, out of Egypt I have called my son. Nobody would have read the Old Testament in any other way but that Israel, God's son, had been brought out of Israel. But yet here's Matthew telling us that Jesus, he reconstitutes the 12 tribes with the 12 disciples around himself. This isn't replacement. This is the fulfillment. All of these things are pointing. All of the Old Testament, the whole enterprise, is pointing to Jesus. And that's not a replacement. That is a fulfillment. And, and, and we were even told, I mean, which I think is wonderful in Acts 7, um, you know, in the original um, language, um, we're told that uh, there was the ecclesia in the wilderness. There was the mm -hmm. church, the congregation in the wilderness. That, that in Abraham, in Abraham before any of this stuff has ever happened, mm -hmm. Abraham believes God in Genesis 15, 6, mm -hmm. and God credits him as righteous, which is, which is how every person that has ever come to know God has to come through faith. And Abraham's looking for the for the heavenly city as much as you and me are looking for the for the heavenly city. And I think what we've done is is we're doing a lot of this driving wedges into things that don't need to be wedge driven. You know, that makes sense or absolutely sure does. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure that you follow us and give us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts.